Hey, Sanctus Church, so glad that you are joining us today. Welcome to the Easter season, this time of hope, of new beginnings. And man, we need hope. We need new beginnings. I thought we'd begin our journey into Easter as a church this year, not with the last words of Jesus on the cross or the Passover or the betrayal of Judas. No, no. I thought we would start with Jesus's last prayer for others. Now, as I read this prayer once again, I was struck how amazing it is, how timely it is, so so helpful, so needed actually for this moment and for you and our whole church. Some of you might know this prayer, others of you might not know, but this is one of the most loved and treasured and used parts of the Bible. Many have called this the holy of holies in the Bible, the inner sanctuary, the very place we see God in his fullness because the heart of Jesus is revealed the most. This is called the great high priestly prayer, a prayer of consecration. This truly is the Lord's prayer. Here we see his love for us, his heart personally for you, his will and desire for every single generation of Christians. Hear Jesus prays. Have you ever thought about it? Jesus's prayers are perfect. Jesus's prayers are never mixed with error or truth. He never has wrong motives. Jesus's prayers are purely honest and authentic and heartfelt and more exalted and more holy and more powerful and more fruitful than anyone who else who has ever prayed. There has never been nor will there ever be greater prayers than the prayers that Jesus prays. Now, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And what's so important and why we're beginning here is because it's spoken within the shadow of the cross. But the shadow, as we're going to see, is not all-consuming. It's not all-powerful. This prayer is not gloomy. Well, here we go, and it's going to get real bad. No, no, this prayer is filled with tenderness and triumphant expectation. It's a victory prayer, not a prayer of fading hope and unbelief. And why do we need this? Because Jesus is praying this just before the worst thing that ever happened in human history is about to take place. And yet he shows us how to be hopeful in dark times. Now, if you read all of John 16, because we're going to be in John 17, you can get a Bible and turn there. If you read all of John 16, Jesus declares some wild things to his own followers just before this prayer moment. It says in John 16, 32, a time is coming, and in fact has now come, that you, my close friends, you're going to scatter each to your own home. You're all going to leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Then verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have so much trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, let's all stop. Notice, he just said to them, you're all going to betray me, abandon me, run away. And oh, by the way, I still want to comfort you, even though I know what you're about to do. And remember, Jesus at this moment has not been in Gethsemane. He he has not asked his father to take the cup away. He's not been rejected by his friends yet. He's not been rejected by the Jewish nation yet. He's not been rejected by the Romans yet, by the world yet. He's not been beaten yet. He has not been pinned to a cross yet. He has not had the sins of the world placed on him yet. And yet, what does he say? I have already overcome the world. Already now. (laughs) So out of that truth, 
And out of that confidence, Jesus gives his command on love. You can read that. And then he culminates his three-year ministry, all the epic things that Jesus did in a farewell conversation. And then he prays for himself. He prays for his inner circle. And then he prays for you. Here we go. John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The hour, the time has come for Jesus to be executed, actually, because it's unjust to be murdered. For Jesus is about to commit the ultimate act of defiance against death and sin and Satan. He has come to die so we can live and overcome all the things in his broken creation. Now, this hour was appointed before the beginning of time. And he says that this moment is glorious. This is beautiful. This is the upside-down kingdom at its best. See, God reverses what should be true. The cross, as most of us know, was by invention an instrument of public shame, a slow, brutal, torturous death. But Jesus is declaring that that was going to be the epicenter of glory, of light, of purity, of redemption, of holiness. And Jesus is praying, let us share glory in this coming act, for we, Father, are one. And then Jesus says in verse 2 in this prayer, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Lean in. Notice again, Jesus says, I have full authority over all people. Now, if Jesus is not God in flesh, this is prideful, arrogant, blasphemous, crazy. It's inappropriate. It's wrong. Think about how offensive this statement is to every single person on earth, atheists, Wiccan witches, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, Sikhs, fill in the blank. He says, I have full authority. It's not appropriate unless, of course, he is God. But we know Jesus is not crazy, and he's not a liar, and he's not Satan, and he's not delusional. He's Lord. So he prays back to the Father, since you have given me power, I will give eternal life to those you choose to give to me. You call them dad, and I'm going to save them. We, we saw this in John 6, No one, Jesus says, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I'm going to raise them up on the last day. Now, again, he is praying all this and saying all this and declaring all this under the shadow of the cross. He already sees victory coming, and he's already declared victory. The cross is victory, not defeat at all. And the outworking of the most glorious act is Jesus giving eternal life to those the Father gives to him. Now, here's the question. And for seekers and skeptics and you who are wrestling with the Christian faith, how does one gain eternal life? Well, we see it here in Jesus's prayer because he actually defines what we'd call the good news, the gospel, the message of Christianity. He says it in verse three. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, to get eternal life, to have eternal life, to walk in eternal life is to know God and there's only one God. And how do you only get to know that one God? Through the one he sent. And who's that? Jesus Christ, him alone. Now get this, the implications are massive. It is impossible to know God or connect with God or be in relationship with the divine in any other way except through Jesus. To know God, you must know the one he has sent. The one he has sent is Jesus Christ. And remember, to know means to believe, and that means informed trust, not just acknowledging he exists, but to have relationship with him personally. 
Jesus keeps praying. Verse 4, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have perfectly worked out what you asked of me, Dad. Now, as I do this final act called the cross, I want the glory that I used to have with you at the beginning of time, before time, and I'm going to have with you forever to be given back to me. So as evil men betray me, and as the world says no to life and to light, and as the demonic and Satan himself gloat over my apparent defeat, I want you to show up and bring glory in that moment. And again, don't miss the claim. To share in God's glory, you have to be God. For God, the Bible says, does not share his glory with any, with with another. So this prayer is a bold, truth-filled declaration that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal and one with the Father. We almost sense a homesickness in Jesus. He wants to go back to where he's come from, back to the place where his Father was, in the heavenlies, the place where there's peace and unity and purity, the place where God within himself experiences the full measure of unity within himself. How much Jesus... You thought about this in this Easter moment? How much Jesus gave up, even leaving that environment so we could know the Father, that we could know salvation, that we could have eternal life? Well, at that moment, Jesus moves from praying over himself to praying for his inner circle, the disciples, those who had already given up all, have watched him and now are about to lose him. They have depended so much on being able to be literally with Jesus in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus knows this is going to be traumatic at best. He says in verse 6, I have revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have comes from you, given to me, comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They know with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. God gave the disciples to Jesus. And notice the progression, because it matters. Again, especially if you're seeking or wondering or questioning. They move from not knowing at all, to encountering but unbelief, then to understanding, then to questioning, then to actually believing on Jesus. They move from accepting his experience and his words to accepting his claims to believing who he actually claimed to be. They were saying that this 33-year-old guy born in Bethlehem, this guy who grew up in Nazareth, whose dad was a carpenter, actually is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, God in flesh. He, by teaching, by sign, by word, by deed, is the savior of the world, the bread from heaven, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the great I am, the Lord himself. And again, we are reminded this Easter season, to know means to believe. It doesn't just mean to perceive or recognize. It means to encounter, to have informed trust. That's faith. Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. Now, don't misread that. It's not like Jesus never prays for the world. Just read John 3.16. The focus of this prayer in this moment is for the 12, the inner circle. Why? Because he knows that what they are about to face is too much, and they would be destroyed without his prayer. Verse 10, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I'm going to remain in the world No longer. I'm out. 
but they're going to stay in the world. And I'm coming to you, Dad. So Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. Oh, well, I was with them. I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except, of course, the one doomed to destruction, so scripture would be fulfilled. That's talking about Judas. Now, a name in the Jewish worldview meant all that the person's about and does and can do. And this prayer is, as I come home to you, Father, I want you to protect them under your name and the name you gave me. See, this might blow your mind a little bit. Have you thought about this? Before Jesus was born, Jesus was not his name. (laughs) He's always been God. He's always been the second person of the Trinity. There's never been a time where Jesus did not exist. But at his birth, he was given this name. The Son of God has given the name Jesus, which is, of course, Joshua, Savior, And now he holds it forever. That's why Paul later wrote in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So Jesus prays, Hey, Father, keep them. Keep them. Now that word keep, if you're taking notes, is actually a shepherding image to guard and protect, to keep them separated from the greatest dangers as they continue to live in that hostile environment. Oh, and and then did you catch it? I pray, Father, that they would be one as we are one. He he knows what they're going to face. He knows what we're going to face our trials, our sins. He knew we'd attack each other. He knew we'd fight over what mode of baptism is really right. He knew we'd fight over worship styles and the color of the carpet in the church. He knew we'd fight because we have different views because of ethnicity, gender, social economics. He knew we would not all be one in our thinking over so much. What does Jesus pray just before he dies? Keep them together. Jesus builds their oneness, their identity, their security, their mission, on their, not on their name, but his name and the name of the Father. It's an external unity. Because if it was internal, it would collapse. But what should blow your mind is he's inviting us to be one with each other like God within the Trinity is one. Really? Jesus says in verse 13, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm in the world, so they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For not, for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer, oh, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Uh, read just the Bible. <laughs> Moses, Elijah, Jonah, all wanted out. They wanted holy isolation. God won't allow it. No holy club here. We're called to live within the world, but God protect us while we're in the world. We want womb-to-tomb Christian experience, safe, sanitary, all Christian all the time. You know, Christian music and Christian friends. No, no, Jesus prays never. We cannot just be the separated ones in the full sense. We, we cannot run to the monastic world to avoid all the darkness and pain of our world. We cannot only know Christians and be in Christian culture. We're not allowed to leave the world. He actually prays we stay in the world. When's the last time you claimed that promise? Jesus prays, though, as we're in the world, we would not accommodate to the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
So sanctify them, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Set them apart by your word. What's God's word? Scripture. Make them holy by your truth, and then send them out. So watch the progression. Jesus prays to the Father about himself and the cross. Jesus prays for his disciples. And then amazingly, man, do we need to hear this in the season. Jesus prays for us. Here we see the historical and spiritual connection of the whole church throughout all of time and space. Verse 20. My prayer is not just for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Insert your name here if you're a Christian. My name is Jonathan David Thompson, and I believed on their message. 2,000 years later, this is me. This is you. And what does he pray for us? Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as you are one. Isn't it amazing, as we are one, isn't it amazing that Jesus, the very first thing he prays for every generation of Christians that will come after the apostles is our unity. Question, and what is Christian unity? Man, we've talked about it a lot this year, right? Second Timothy came out, Philemon came out, Christmas, like the Holy Spirit is bringing this to our church time and time again. It's the older pastor now, Chuck Swindoll, years ago. I love when he wrote on this in his time and era, but it brings that home. He says, unity is not uniformity. He said, you know, training for a military strips each recruit of his or her individuality in order to create a uniformed kind of unity. All recruits are given the same haircut, required to wear the same uniform at graduation from boot camp. They emerge looking the same, sounding the same, behaving the same, prepared for the same kind of duty. But the body of Jesus Christ is not uniform. He says, just, just, he says, think. And he lists some people, he says, think about Paul, world-class thinker, double PhD, Hellenistic Jew, Pharisee, who becomes a follower of Jesus. And then there's Luke, who, who's a doctor, who's not a Jew, who's a careful historian. And then one of the church fathers, soon after, a Tertullian church father, passionate, fiery, logical, zealous, Bernard of Cleveux, a French monk who wrote fine hymns in a cloister, John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, who died just to give us an English Bible, George Whitfield, Calvinist, uh, Anglican evangelist, John Wesley, not a Calvinist, founder of the Methodists, and, and that's just a few names. Think about all the amazing women and all the amazing men from all the different ethnic backgrounds that have made up the church for 2,000 years. Unity is not uniformity. He also said unity is not unanimity. Unanimity requires absolute agreement on every matter, including matters of conscience and opinion. By the way, as a side note, in this dangerous time, make sure that a matter of conscience and opinion is stated as conscience and opinion, not capital T truth. We must all agree on certain crucial matters of absolute truth. We have the freedom to disagree on many matters without having to forfeit love for each other or even acceptance. Thank goodness, he writes, that we don't have to agree on everything or many of the great advances of the church never would have happened in the first place. And lastly, and I love this especially, he says, unity is not unification. Writing again, probably in the 80s, but it's still so relevant. He says, I don't think Jesus Christ is half as disturbed as people are by the existence of all sorts of denominations. 
The manner in which some believers broke away from others might not be admirable. The doctrines of some are definitely not as pure as others, but the concept of churches differing on non-essential matters and maintaining distinct identities is not an endangerment to our unity. Some extremists, it's true, seek reasons all the time to separate, right? Some believers cannot distinguish between essential and non-essential matters of doctrine or conscience and therefore behave arrogantly towards others who disagree, perceiving more divisions than really exist. So that's not what unity is not. But remember, Jesus says to the Father, I pray for the unity. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought together in complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. Sorry, let me do that again. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. He prays for our unity, and unity is really knowing the same God through Jesus and also loving each other. His prayer is what we all learned about in in the Philemon series. It's about reconciliation, forgiveness, a prayer for love. Isn't it amazing that Jesus prays for our unity and he prays for love? And again, what is Christian love? I mean, really, what is Christian love? Oh, right. He prayed 2,000 years ago that we would be 1 Corinthians 13. Christian love, agape love, is patient and it's kind. Doesn't envy, does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, it rejoices with truth, it protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Jesus not only prays for our unity and our love, but he prays for our future. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Now, what's this environment he's speaking about? Oh, he already talked about this in John 14 too. My father's house has many rooms. If it was not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me and you also may be where I am. Now, the home metaphor is what Jesus chooses to use. Again, as I've preached this before, don't become so North American that you think that Jesus is building a bunch of mansions in the by and by or in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no no room for the so-called, what we call in the West, the American dream. The word home is abode. Abide, remain, place, and space where there's a presence. Now, yes, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be amazing and epic and and healing. But remember, the place comes second to the person. Jesus is going to be at the center of that place. That's why we want to go to the new heavens and the new earth. If you don't want Jesus here, you're definitely going to not want him there. You know how close you are to God with your love of Jesus. In in Jesus' culture, he chooses this image because when a guy got engaged, there was this thing called a betrothal period where a dad would, sorry, a son would go to his dad's house and would build an addition to his dad's home, build a room. And then he'd get married and bring his wife home to live in that part of the house. That's the image that Jesus is invoking. This is what Jesus is doing for you right now. Jesus says, I'm going to be there. And oh, by the way, it's a permanent residence. It can't be taken from you. It can't be lost. It can't be stolen. It can't be broken into. It's never going to be lost because of sickness or death or bad investment. No, 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 no. It's permanent. And Jesus is at the center of it. I mean, is this not what we all long for as humans? Security, permanence, presence, love, perfect, right relationship. Jesus, right? 
Verse 25, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus ends this epic prayer with a vow to God the Father and a promise to you and us. I want you again in this Easter season to see the truth. You could call this the secret of the Christian life and the secret to Christian truth and love and mission to becoming the answer to his prayers. And what is it? He says, he lives within us. By sending the Spirit, of course. He will keep increasing God's love to us, around us, and in us. See, Jesus, with eyes wide open, prays such a prayer that we animated dust, that we humans only made in the image of God, that we who are broken, sinful, unfaithful people are literally ushered into God's own conversation between the Father and the Son in the Spirit to make us like him. Wow. Why do we, 2021, as a group of followers of Jesus here in the GTA and of course beyond, need this moment? Well, number one, we need real hope, not invented hope. I want to point this out again. Jesus declared he overcame the world and he prayed all of this before the cross. Jesus has overcome the world. In the truest sense, Jesus has overcome COVID. In the truest sense, Jesus has overcome death. In the truest sense, Jesus has already overcome all of our divisions. Jesus has already overcome racism and hate. He's overcome the world. Our hope is rooted not in Sanctus Church, not in myself as a pet. It's rooted in Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you are doomsday scrolling or you are, listen, look to the Lord Jesus and gain your footing and hope again. Number two, this Easter, the Holy Spirit has been clear with us at Sanctus Church that he is challenging us again and again to keep fighting for the unity that he actually has given us in Jesus. Jesus prayed for our unity. Jesus expects our unity. Keep working out what we have learned about unity, forgiveness, and reconciliation like we saw in Philemon. But to bring this home personally to you, when you read this prayer, Jesus is actually talking about you. Jesus prayed, and then we know later in the Bible, it says that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and is still praying. He's praying for our security right now. He's praying for our holiness, your personal holiness right now. He's praying for your courage right now. He's praying for our unity in Sanctus Church right now. Literally, Jesus is in the heavens praying for Sanctus Church's unity. He's praying that every Christian would be right seeing and right believing, filled with light. He's praying that we would have love between each other. He's praying for obedience because that's proof of genuine belief. He's praying for you. Honestly, I know it's a preacher thing to say, but for real, I think some of you need to hear today that Jesus knows you by name and he's praying for you. And it would just be great as we enter the Easter season to say amen to these things. But there's one last thing that he prayed for. Did you catch it? Here's where I want to end. Why did Jesus pray for us? Why does Jesus pray for the 12 and then us and keep praying for us? Well, Christians are the only and the world's best hope of ever seeing the glory of God. Jesus made God clear and made his glory understood. 
And we are called to do the same for Jesus. He prays for our love, for God and each other, and for our holiness, so the world could see Jesus. Let me say this again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. You're saying, John, why are you bringing this up? Very simple. We are entering into the Easter season. And one week from today, we will be uh, in person and then online celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. A few days after that, I think it's April 7th, we will be launching Alpha again, virtually inviting as many people. So let me ask you this question. And yes, I'm a broken record, but it matters. Who are you going to invite to Easter? Who are you going to invite to Alpha online? Because they will believe in me through their message. We are the ones who make the glory of God clear. And I just want to challenge you. I want to challenge you because this Easter could be the eternal turning point for your neighbor, your family member, your friend. Don't let distraction or tiredness or, oh, they won't ever invite people. It has never been easier to invite people, even virtually, to a service to hear the good news of Jesus or to invite them to Alpha so they can explore the faith. This, again, is the great call that we have, not only to love each other and to walk in unity and holiness, but to see the next generation behind us embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. I challenge you this Easter, invite not for the sake of the reputation of the church or the numbers of the church, invite because eternal life is at stake. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for willing to be willing to even come. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us Jesus. We continue to pray that the prayers of Jesus would impact us, change us. For those who need to hear today that you, Jesus, are praying for them, let them know by name you're really doing it. And we do dedicate this Easter season now, right now, and praying that many, many people would hear the good news of Jesus in person and online, here and beyond. And the next generation that God has given to Jesus and Jesus would save, it would take place now in this season. Give us courage to step out, we ask, in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen.